So tonight I would like to explore with you, and to me it's always kind of this radical exploration, these talks, uh, in uh, two aspects that we've been uh, looking at. One uh, was sort of the dark and the other the light. And so um, the way I would like to uh, play with those or speak about them this evening is uh, one about uh, the shadow, the personal and the collective uh, in our um, kind of world that we live in uh, from a personal point of view. And the other is uh, really I thought about, well, what is light? What, how, how does that all work? And I thought, well, really what it is, it's healing. Uh, it's this capacity for us to um, come to some wholeness in ourselves, some way of uh, relating to all the parts of ourselves and uh, our world. So in my usual fashion, I sat this afternoon. I missed the 2.15 sitting, which I was supposed to ring the bell. So I was not here. <laughs> but I know nobody noticed. So the other morning when I was giving instructions, I sort of, you know, come up with these things. I go, oh, that's, that's where'd that come from? So the other morning I was talking about um, the practice of uh, shakantaza and uh, how it, it's really translated as just sitting. And, and suddenly after that I went, well, it's actually just sitting in amazement. So I wrote you a poem this afternoon why I didn't make it to the sitting um, uh, called Sitting in Amazement. Oh, mercy, mercy. Why sit in the dark, this pond of a self, only to dive into the darkness, sinking deeper and deeper, allowing the face paint, which was so carefully crafted, to dissolve into swirling colors? Somewhere deep down in the unknown, Face paint, smeared, tattered clothes of young prince and princesses, stripped to the bone. One turns up where the rays of dawn over hills of Japanese calligraphy, streaming colors shining through the transparency of thoughts. Next moment, crashing to the surface, dripping from the depths. One looks down, seeing the paintbrushes, the reflection in the water, the jars of paint with names like mother, Father, expectations, abandonment, old wounds, betrayals, beliefs, fears, waiting to be painted back on that smeared face. knowing somewhere 
deep down, less paint is needed to face the world. Knowing somewhere deep down that less paint is needed to face the world. So I was thinking about the season right now, and I was going back as um, kind of reviewing what is so about um, this life and um, things that stand out, uh, showing a kind of the weakness uh, in the world out of the sort of collective. When I was 15, my, uh, I was on a, anyway, a trip around the world, and my mother, who was a great um, believer in uh, the works of Mahatma Gandhi, um, also in the United Nations, and we lived in Switzerland, Geneva, and her mission uh, was um, very much to uh, find uh, social justice in the world. And one of the things, uh, she took me to India uh, at that time, and um, also that year uh, for Christmas, uh, we flew to uh, Lebanon, to Beirut, uh, the, really the, the jewel of of um, the Middle East. It had the kind of the, these uh, blue-green waters of the Mediterranean, and you could look up through this beautiful city and see these snow-capped mountains. You know, it was certainly the, um, truly the jewel. And I remember my mother took us out to uh, where there was a Palestinian uh, camp. And I just remember how uh, hard it was at that age to see uh, the kids and uh, um, nothing to do inside these uh, fences, you know. And later that, uh, we went to Israel, and then uh, for Christmas Eve, uh, I remember going to Bethlehem. And uh, sort of my, it was really one of my first, really, if I see it as pilgrimages. And uh, trying to touch into um, my own kind of history connection to that in some ways. And uh, seeing kind of the beauty and the difficulty uh, that uh, this kind of world created in so many ways. And, uh, I remember two years later, and uh, this was in probably around 64, 65, uh, growing up in Europe and uh, in Switzerland, and 
um, I had American passport. And uh, I came to the United States and went to Georgia. Of course, we all know what was going on there. And uh, again, it was this uh, sense of uh, one side was rage and the other side was hopelessness. You know, and I remember just getting so caught up that finally the FBI had to come and pull me out. You know, and this uh, between that part of us that's kind of the the rebel and the, uh, the recognition of the inequality. You know, of um, there's uh, race and education and uh, my mother. Um, uh, around us in Switzerland, they're all the kind of her friends were all gay, and uh, many were American. And it was easier for them to live there in the '60s because there was less discrimination against them. And so there was always this thing about how um, we created such difficulty uh, through our uh, blindness and ignorance. And um, I remember at the time uh, before I came to San Francisco in uh, 1966 to be a hippie and uh, partake of the, uh, really the, uh, what, psychedelic, uh, but it was really about vision and revolution and uh, can we change? You know, and there was a lot of disappointment in me. I remember coming here and, and uh, also, again, kind of this confusion and this uh, rebel. And, and uh, I came and, and the, when I first came, I had a friend in England who killed himself. And uh, it affected me very deeply. And my best friend who lived in San Francisco. And I came here and I was here for two months. And he came to me one evening and said, I can't do this anymore. And he uh, shot himself. And then three months later, my mother was on her way uh, in Italy and was uh, in a head-on collision, was killed in a car accident. And suddenly, it was like, where do you go? What do you do when the doors all get closed? You know. And we all have pieces of this. It's all. This is our story in a way of different parts of it, you know, uh, whether, um, you know, how much of it we see or not. And hopefully, uh, I always wish not so much. But at that time, then there was this longing, this wanting uh, to go beyond, to get out of to uh, transcend, you know. And so, uh, fortunately, I can say and I, that uh, um, that's kind of instant view of transcendent through kind of the 60s there in San Francisco um, gave me at least a direction. And uh, then heading overland to India, in the 60s, uh, looking for some way so I didn't have to turn around. I didn't in some way have to own 
the, the history. You know, all these painted, this painted face and all the, the, the way to protect and present, you know. Uh, and I went there thinking somehow I could get out. And in our culture, there was a, always this idea that somehow, you know, in my upbringing, that somehow if I surrendered enough, I'd be taken care of, that somehow there was some big daddy in the sky or something that would uh, hold me in some way. But by this time, I didn't know anymore. Uh, all I knew is I wanted kind of out. And I always joke, you know, for my years in India of traveling around, one of the things I loved was wearing a skirt and having a purse. You know, it was really, it was really cool, you know. I mean, we got there in the 60s and we went native, you know, and that was the thing. And it was kind of these uh, seekers of, the, of uh, you know, maybe some misguided idea of freedom. Uh, in that process, I remember one of my Tibetan teachers, uh, Lama Tupdanyashi, I was sitting up on a hill called Kopan looking down over Kathmandu, and then it was it had been just the astrologer, the the house of the king's astrologer. So just old funky uh, building there. And we were looking down over the valley and he said, you know, you you have such a strong idea that somehow it's like fasting, getting out of it, uh, a pushing past and transcending uh, here. You know, somehow that's where freedom was. And he said, you know, this practice is based on turning around. And he pointed back to his heart that you have to go through. You have to go through. I didn't understand, you know. Uh, but there are pieces of it that uh, are so valuable uh, in this process of, uh, of seeking uh, that I had a totally different view on this, how about getting out. And it really had to do with, uh, some years ago, I've, um, for some years I was leading uh, these, what they call, in the footsteps of the Buddha, uh, uh, visiting uh, the places that uh, the Buddha was uh, born, uh, where uh, he was enlightened, where his first teachings happened and where he died. The first year that I led this, and even though I'd been there before, and it was something about uh, having uh, other people with me, and we went to visit uh, across uh, the river where the Buddha had become enlightened, uh, this uh, going through this rice fields in this small little village uh, to a tree, just simply a tree uh, out in the uh, rice fields that is where um, 
the Buddha uh, recognized uh, that there was another path besides transcendence. Uh, that uh, not just kind of going out, uh, but there was another way. And it was really, this was, he coined the middle way. And it's the peace that we can take into our world. That uh, is not to leave it, but uh, actually to participate uh, simply through uh, what he recognized. It's true. And so the story uh, is simply based on the suttas that the Buddha, after uh, six years of austerities, of seeing that somehow could he go beyond this? And he had left his family uh, many times uh, people, you know, you could say it was kind of child abandonment uh, and that he was a kind of lousy dad, you know? But when you actually look at what was it that happened, was he saw the most beautiful thing in the world. His son Rahula was born. Uh, and in that, his love was so great that he knew he had nothing to give that child. You know, he had a kingdom, but he really felt he had nothing to give that child. And so that actually that night he left, not abandonment, but uh, that seeking to bring something back. And a story goes, actually, when Rahula was eight, uh, his mom, of course, was pissed off, and, and uh, uh, he... Um, young Rahula goes to visit his dad who had been through this transformative process uh, over these years and um, his, his mother said well go and get your inheritance to this young eight year old you know? and as story goes uh, the uh, young Rahula uh, went to see his dad and ask him, you know, uh, for his inheritance. And the Buddha had his inheritance, you know, and he said, I will give it to you. And at that point, uh, Rahula actually takes robes and uh, spends the rest of his life, you know, dedicated to this awakening. So it wasn't in many ways, you know, we always see these stories as shadow pieces that we see from one side, but there may be other sides to it. And this side was, here was this person that so deeply uh, was moved by uh, this experience uh, of a child coming into the world that he knew he didn't have something to offer. Now, in the same way, the story is I go back to this piece uh, about um, this tree and uh, the Buddha who's gone through these six years of austerity, and they say he had gotten down to uh, you know, one grain of rice and he had done the extremes of uh, mortif- 
self-mortification. And in that process, uh, which was very much, I will use the term, kind of the male warrior uh, aspect of, uh, you know, drive through, get out, go beyond. And in his uh, insight, uh, he recognized that there could be another way. He may have missed something. He was with his five friends. They had been up in these caves living for some time. And, and um, he came down, and they came with him. And he was uh, meditating under uh, this tree. And this tree was, uh, in India, there's very much a tradition uh, of, um, well, there's a thing in Nepal particularly, where, say, a young woman um, uh, of eight to nine uh, is taken for a ceremony to marry a tree, you know, the tree in the village. And uh, there is an importance to that, is the fact that the tree is still there. Or later marriage, we don't know. <laughs> but the tree is always there. Uh, as kind of the ground of the village and the culture and uh, something that uh, stays. And this woman, Sujata, who all we know is that she was uh, young, she had gone to the tree and asked for, uh, prayed to have a child, and that she had had her first child, which means she could have been 14, and was beautiful and uh, was bringing this offering uh, to thank uh, the kind of tree for uh, this child. And sitting under this tree uh, was uh, Siddhartha Gotama of the Sakya clan. And uh, in the tradition, the sadhu tradition of his time, uh, it was unheard of for him to accept anything. It would have to come as a sadhu. It would have to come through a man to be given to him. And he couldn't actually touch that. And what he does is she comes and first she doesn't know, you know, exactly what he is, you know, uh, because he is in such a transpersonal state. He has tried to go beyond this place, you know, through his willpower and his self-mortification. And at that point, uh, she comes and doesn't know who he is or anything, and she offers uh, what is known as kheer. And kheer in uh, India is, uh, it is a mixture of, of, of boiled rice and buffalo milk, uh, honey and cardamom seed, um, rose water. And in many ways, what it is, it represents mother's milk. You know? So she goes and she offers mother's milk, basically, to the Buddha, who accepts it and, and holds it from her and eats this here. And there's some discrepancy. I don't know. and I'm not a, anywhere near a scholar. I'm just a storyteller. You know? um, is that whether it was 
once, or there is also a possibility it could have been that he that she brought Kier to him for eight days, so he strengthened himself, his body, so he could go and make a resolve under the bow tree um, to uh, face uh, his own, uh, they say Mara or Shadow, uh, those uh, uh, difficult and entrancing things. To, to actually transform himself, uh, to become actually something else, to become a Buddha, an awakened one. So what is it about this story? I, I was walking out there, and we went, and I had this group of people, and I was sitting, and, and suddenly there was this, I have to, I'm not the type that can read and get anything. I've always been a person that had to touch things to understand them. You know, it had to be a, a kind of full experience, and then I could get it. And sitting there under this tree, and I was doing this teaching, I suddenly got that what the Buddha had done was accept the feminine. You know, and say that I can't do this without, from a kind of the union point of view, or that part of his shadow, uh, that he had to accept uh, this, what he don't is the middle way uh, as accepting the feminine, uh, that side of himself. And that that uh, gave him the strength then to go and sit under the bow tree, you know, that he actually accepted that. And his five friends um, uh, became uh, terribly angry and disappointed and uh, left him, you know, as sort of a, a betrayer uh, of this seeking. Now, what's true also is that the Buddha went and sat under the tree and made a resolve uh, that he would uh, sit until he was awakened. And the, as story goes, Mara comes as the armies of Mara. And they come and, and uh, there's a beautiful picture in Saranath, India, where uh, one of the temples you walk in and there's a, a picture of the Buddha uh, under the bow tree. And there are the armies, they call the Ten Armies of Mara, which are, there's kind of uh, everything from dancing maidens to uh, spears and swords and arrows and all the fierceness of our anger and our fear and our uh, jealousy and aggressiveness, uh, all attacking him. And he's sitting there uh, still uh, in his... Steadiness. And as they hit his kind of energetic field, it's quite beautiful that these weapons and uh, forces of attack uh, change uh, to flowers. And from flowers, they change to petals. And they fall. And so there is this circle of petals. 
around the Buddha. And I think so much that part of all of our, we come here and this is hard work. It's really hard work, you know? Uh, but the awakening of the Buddha, that that's been passed on to us, is this, in a sense, like an aura that transforms the, uh, our own uh, shadow pieces, our personal uh, stories and uh, places that we have been hurt and uh, the kind of dysfunctionality of not only ourselves but a society and parents and schools and, you know, uh, all the distinctions that that separate, you know, cause separation. Uh, when the tempter Mara realized that uh, the Buddha uh, was uh, getting close uh, to uh, and I don't like the word uh, defeat, but transform, actually uh, dissolve uh, the power of the dark, of the shadow. That Mara asked the Buddha, he said, what right do you have? What right do you have to awaken? And the Buddha took his right hand and he uh, put it to the earth, to Gaia. No. And he said, uh, Gaia, uh, the earth, is my witness to the many deeds, in this case, he used many lives, uh, that I have over and over again stood, uh, and I, tra- I kind of paraphrase this, uh, stood in the, uh, the values and the actions of the good, you know, over and over again. And it was Gaia, the earth, in a sense the feminine again, that uh, gave permission uh, for the Buddha to awaken. And so our practice is this practice of holding um, this, the middle way, uh, this uh, practice that is based on the simplicity, uh, the simplicity of, uh, in a sense, the one way is to be awake, to be mindful. in whatever way is possible. And in doing that, uh, mindfulness, what is mindfulness? You know, how is it experienced? You know, is it something that can be uh, held or captured? or uh, What is it? How is it? You know, 
in some ways, it's not anything. It's transparency itself <coughs> that arises uh, due to intention and is only in relationship to here. It can't be about the past. It can't be about the future. It can only be about right now. You know? So we have to release everything you know, for right now to be here. In a sense, the ultimate uh, kind of surrender. Now, what's beautiful in that is that it has no other function than leaving one here. Now, what's also true is simultaneously that there is a, um, in a sense, a byproduct that goes with just being here. And it's referred to as uh, clear comprehension. And this clear comprehension, uh, it's really is intelligence, uh, in a sense, without you. You know, uh, it is this intelligence that uh, they talk about it as it has uh, four aspects. At first, is naturally has a clear comprehension of purpose. So when the mindfulness is there, this recognition of wakefulness. You know, is not something the seeker doesn't need to be there. That seeking maybe is extra from that place. It's part of the mindfulness. It's, it's the intelligence within it. Uh, it also has this capacity uh, to have this clarity, this clear comprehension uh, they say of suitability or adaptability, that when that mindful, when you are awake and you're here, you know, and there's an understanding uh, kind of, 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 of how this is, kind of the awakening nature of things, that there is this uh, ability uh, to respond to whatever happens. You know, you don't have to think, you don't have to, you know, figure out all these things. You can just relax. You can allow that adaptability, that ability to respond uh, to the moment. Uh, also, in the sense of, um, I, I have sometimes uh, a difficult time remembering things all the time, actually. You know? And uh, yet what I found is there is, uh, from this practice, and I'm not saying I'm going to remember anything anyway, but I see that there is a remembering that's built into this because there's clarity of purpose. Uh, there I trust because there is a suitability uh, an adaptability that's there. And so I remember this mindfulness. 
there's also this clarity of uh, two uh, aspects, this fourth aspect, which has to do first with Uh, it's it's called clear comprehension of reality. It's a big word, you know. But I I have a way I'd like to talk to you about it, and I have to bring some of my own history in here because uh, it's something I've been really exploring uh, these last uh, last year or so, actually. And it has to do when I was a child. Um, I. Uh, was brought up in, in my first, I uh, had a nursemaid and I spoke a uh, Mayan dialect. And uh, we lived in San Salvador, El Salvador, and my father had a little factory there and there was a revolution. And, and I was four and a half years old and uh, the, they burned the factory and we don't know exactly what happened, you know, except for there were a couple suitcases on a DC-3 to Mexico City and then came to the States sort of, uh, you know, rootless in some way. And I was taken, uh, what I do know, I, I uh, was taken away from uh, my nursery, who was really very much, my mother was an intellectual. She was a wonderful, wonderful woman, uh, my great teacher. But she was not, you know, such a great, uh, she didn't, was a different kind of mom, you know. <laughs> but uh, some uh, an earth person had deeply held me and touched me and kept me. And when I was pulled away from that, I came here and I um, stopped speaking. So I always joke and say my first retreat <laughs> was at four and a half. And I was silent for a year. And in that time, of course, my family was trying to figure out what was wrong with me. So I was actually diagnosed as autistic. So I was put in a school. I was put actually in the University of Kentucky in Lexington for autistic children. In that process, you know, um, there's been a piece that I've been exploring, and it has to do uh, with um, how we get caught up uh, in, in the sense of this comprehensive reality, that our reality becomes connected to our language. And it always fascinated me that, you know, in, in native uh, languages, uh, this is just a story I tell that someone told me that, you know, when a mother rolls a ball across the floor, that the um, child uh, of, uh, of native people is taught rolling. So it's taught the process. Uh, what in our culture we're taught is ball, object relationship. So we began this process very early of, it's mine, right? My ball. And uh, so there is this connection with language with subject and object. And that relationship uh, is um, something that here in this place, 
uh, we're trying to somewhat pull back from, you know, uh, kind of enter the, uh, uh, the how we look at everything and, and it's just an experience. But what we do is we put our language on the experience. So we, we in a sense, leave uh, that reality, which, uh, and construe or impute or label uh, our world. And we create our language around that. Uh, and that language is uh, based on uh, dualism in self and other. And part of this process is first to recognize that that's what we do. I'm not saying that's just what we do, and it, it, it helps us. But it's also somewhat a hindrance. And that hindrance is between direct experience and the imputing, though. Uh, the uh, laying on uh, of what's happening. And our practice here, this mindfulness, this clear comprehension first is, to me, one piece is that once we move back from the labeling, uh, from the imputing what is a table, what is the flowers, uh, but just what they are in momentary experience. As we do that and kind of let uh, that uh, training of, of labeling go, then we come to what is it that is happening right now? You know, is this is is anything solid here? You know, you sit and explore your body. You know, uh, when I was going through the body, it's just points in space. That's all it is, and it's a river. There's a river of information that is constantly in flux. You know, it's never the same. The mind never goes back to the same body again. It's always something else. It's different. You know, it's not how we think. It's how it is. And so there is this comprehensive reality, seeing the impermanent phenomena of experience. <coughs> the reality of that, <coughs> excuse me, So there is seeing that somehow this is all moving so rapidly and uncontrollable from experiential point of view that what we deem to be solid and real may simply be phenomena arising and passing away. You know, has no reality more than just kind of empty phenomena. It has no essence, no root. You know, uh, it is just what it is, from moment to moment, from mindfulness to mindfulness. You know. And once one begins to, from that place of saying, I'm not imputing, or I'm not putting anything on this, and I see that 
transiency of the experience, then one begins to feel that uh, what was deemed to be separate is not separate. You know? So it's actually from that place, it may be impermanent, but it's connected. You can't take one molecule out of this moment. You know? So we're not separate from anything. This is all, it's not even personal, it's just a process that's happening. You know? And that connection has a quality. A quality, a quality sometimes, you know, you could say uh, maybe it's just phenomena arising in passive way. But because it's not separate, and you and I, we wonder what that clear comprehension is from that view, uh, there is this goodness that the Buddha experienced. Uh, why he wanted to teach, why he reached out you know, and touched over the centuries has touched so many lives. You know. So in that place of where it's all just this molecular movement that's all happening so fast and, and we get caught, oh, it's empty. Well, but the form itself is connected. It's just what it is right now. And we can care about that. We're going back into a world that we've come here to dive down into the depths and, and kind of uh, sometimes I see this as in the healing world as the polstice pulling out, you know, sometimes the most difficult retreat can be the most fruitful retreat. You know, it's not what we think it is always. So a little Kabir here. I know the way you can get. I know the way you can get when you have not had a drink of love. Your face hardens. Your sweet muscles cramp. Children become concerned about a strange look that appears in your eyes, which even begins to worry your own mirror and nose. Squirrels and birds sense your sadness and call an important conference in a tall tree. They decide which secret code to chant to help your mind and soul. Even angels fear that brand of madness that arrays itself against the world, throws sharp stones and spears into the innocent and into oneself. Oh, I know the way you can get, even if you've not been drinking love. You might rip apart every sentence your friends and teachers say, looking for the hidden clauses. You might weigh every word on a scale like a dead fish. You might pull out a ruler to measure 
from every angle in your darkness, the beautiful dimensions of a heart you once trusted. I know the way you can get. If you have not had a drink from love's hands, this is why all the great ones speak of the vital need to keep remembering God. So you will come to know and see him as being so playful and wanting, just wanting to help. This is why Hafiz says, bring your cup near, for I am a sweet old vagabond with an infinite leaking barrel of light and laughter and truth that the beloved has tied on my back. Please, dear one, indeed, please bring your heart near me for all I care about is quenching your thirst for freedom as a sane man can ever care is giving love. It's not over till it's over. <laughs> no. So, uh, this mindfulness, you know, it's a friend that kind of dissolves the dark and uh, heals the willing. sometimes unbeknownst to us, it works. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.